Good evening, everyone. My name's Beth, and we'll be reading from Luke chapter 20, verses 1 to 19. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, We don't know where it was from. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this peril against them. But they were afraid of the people. Good evening, folks. Evening uh, to those of you who are joining on the live stream tonight. Uh, it's nice to be with you. Uh, I'm Mark, if I haven't met you. Uh, quick updates uh, about the church book of the term. We've started selling them last week, a book called Gentle and Lowly. Uh, we sold out last week. We got some more in this week, and we almost sold out again. So I've got three copies left. And if you want to get one, you missed out last week, you better be quick this week because they're going to go fast. $15, you can see me out in the foyer after the service, and I'll be happy to sell you one. Uh, let me pray for us, and uh, then we'll have a think about Luke 20. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, we really do thank you that you are a God who wants to be known, uh, that you've chosen to not be silent, but to reveal yourself through your Son and in your Word. And so thank you that we have your Word tonight. Thank you that as we read it, you are speaking to us through your spirit. 
pray that your spirit would help us now as we think and as we reflect. Uh, Help us to see where you are speaking into our lives, where we are out of step with our Saviour. Give us faith to believe what we're reading tonight, Father, and help us to see you and behold you more clearly. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, One of the things I reckon that defines Australian culture is that uh, we, and I use the word we loosely, I'm only half Australian, grew up in England, but we have uh, a lack of respect for authority. I hope that's not offensive for me to tell you that if you're Australian. Uh, That is, uh, that's the water that you're swimming in in Australia, even if you don't realise it. Uh, We are one of the cultures in the world, I think, that has the lowest level of respect for authority. We call our Prime Minister by his first name. There are not many countries that do that. That's a weird thing to do. You may not realise that, but, you know, that, that's Australian culture. We cut down the tall poppies. We just don't respect authority. It's not part of kind of our culture. And uh, sociologists have recognised that and have looked into kind of why that might be. There's a whole bunch of theories. The theory that I like is that perhaps that kind of attitude comes from our our convict roots, you know, the nation that grew out of uh, a convict people. Uh, maybe that's where the attitude comes from that kind of says, you know what, I've worked hard to get where I am and no bloke with a badge is going to hold me down just because he's got a fancy title. You know, that's kind of perhaps the attitude that springs out of our convict roots. Uh, I was reading this week and I discovered that the one and only time in Australian history where there was an attempted military coup uh, was back in 1808, and it was something called the Rum Rebellion. Back in 1808, there was a military regiment stationed in New South Wales that was called the Rum Corps, and that was because uh, this military regiment controlled the illicit rum trade in Sydney at the time, just making a little bit of money on the side. Uh, and uh, this military uh, regiment had been butting heads with the New South Wales governor at the time, a guy called William Bly. And uh, on January the 26th, 1808, 400 members of the Rum Corps marched into Government House and arrested the Governor of New South Wales. And they kept him in confinement in Sydney and then they put him on a ship and they kept him in the ship off the coast of Hobart in Tasmania for two years, (laughs) under arrest for two years. During that time, uh, the military was in control of New South Wales uh, until 1810 when Lachlan Macquarie became the next Uh, appointed governor of New South Wales. And I just, I love that story. I think that story captures the Australian spirit really, really well. You know, the only time that we have risen up to to shake off the shackles of government was when they got in the way of our access to alcohol. I just think that says something about Australia, really. That's who we are. We are rebels at heart. There is no great respect for authority in this country, and certainly not when that authority gets in the way of us having our fun and our freedom. Now, in our passage today in Luke chapter 20, we meet some people who are determined to stage a coup. Uh, It's not a coup uh, in the military sense to throw off government authorities. Uh, Rather, it's a spiritual coup that they are trying to stage to throw off the authority of God Almighty. Now, if you were here last week uh, and you remember what we looked at at the end of Luke chapter 19, you'll remember that in the story, Jesus has just entered Jerusalem at this point and he has been hailed by the crowds as he's coming in on the donkey as the king who is coming in the name of the Lord. And he enters the city and he makes a beeline straight for the temple. 
And he begins to immediately assert his authority as God's king in that place. Remember what he does? He turns over the temples. He drives out the money changers. He criticizes the religious establishment. And he sets up basically as a resident teacher in the temple. It was a move that was designed deliberately to ruffle feathers. And that's exactly what it did. Because at the end of chapter 19, we read last week that the Jewish religious leaders were determined at that point to find a way to kill Jesus. They didn't take kindly to Jesus coming into the city like he owned the place. Uh, They didn't like their own authority being challenged. They weren't ready to relinquish their authority to King Jesus just yet. And so their solution was to assassinate him. Might be a bit of a drastic solution in your opinion. It is easy, I think, when you read about the reaction that some people had towards Jesus, this revulsion against his authority. You can read that all the time throughout the Gospels. And it's easy to perhaps to shake our heads at those people and to feel horrified about it. You think, who would, who would react to Jesus like that? It's so unreasonable to react to Jesus like that, isn't it? Um, he asserts his authority and they want him dead. I mean, just calm down a little bit. And we shake our heads, we think it's just terrible. But before you think that tonight, just entertain an idea with me. Have a think about how you go when somebody else comes along and asserts their authority in your life and derails your plans. Think about how you go with that. I think that we all struggle with that when it happens, when someone comes and takes the reins of our life No matter who that is, even if it's God, I think we struggle with that from time to time. We would much prefer to rule ourselves. Uh, It just kind of makes more sense to us. It just emerges uh, from this belief that we have ingrained in ourselves. We want to rule ourselves. I want to suggest that to differing degrees, uh, we share this response to Jesus, where Jesus asserts his rightful authority in the world and in our lives, and we balk. We resist. We, we push him back. Think about when Jesus' rule in your life becomes costly to you, becomes inconvenient to you. When, when your perceived freedom or fun is being impinged upon. Think about those moments and think how glad are you in those moments to relinquish authority of your life to him, to bend the knee to King Jesus. I think it's pretty easy to feel regularly that God is out to ruin our fun and and perhaps even to justify and think, well, you know, if I just sort of ignore Jesus' authority here, if I just step outside of what he wants me to do right now, it's not really that big of a deal. I'm sure he'd understand. It's justified even to, to, to step out of that harsh rule of God in my life from time to time. I think we all feel that to differing degrees. So as we read the reaction here in Luke chapter 20 of these leaders, instead of shaking our heads tonight and thinking, oh, that's terrible, let's just think about how we might be doing that as well. So as our passage starts tonight, these religious leaders who are struggling with Jesus' authority, they come up to him in the temple courts and they ask him there in verse 2, they say, tell us by what authority you're doing these things. Who gave you this authority, Jesus? Now, Put yourself in Jesus' shoes at this point. Uh, You're the Lord of the universe. (laughs) 
you created all things, including these people who are standing right there in front of you. In fact, by your will, these people are existing at this very present moment. You've come from heaven to save them from their sins. And here they are standing in front of you, staring you in the face, saying, who do you think you are, mate? Who made you the boss, Jesus? <laughs> How do you think you would feel if you were Jesus at that point? I, I think you'd be tempted to use, you know, a small amount of your very immense power to put these people in their place. That's certainly how I would be tempted to feel. That's not what Jesus does, is it? It's worth noticing here at the start of the story how Jesus shows incredible composure in the face of this challenge. He does not respond the way that you and I would to this kind of disrespect. He doesn't go on the defensive. He doesn't give them 10 reasons why they ought to respect his authority. He just answers their question with a tone of authority by simply posing a question back to them. And it's a question there about John the Baptist, uh, which puts the religious leaders, you can see, in kind of an impossible bind. If they choose to kind of discredit John the Baptist, well, they will suffer the anger of the crowd. So they can't do that because the leaders, they're all cowards. They're afraid of the crowd. But if they affirm John the Baptist's authority, they sort of inadvertently validate Jesus. And that's not an option for them either. So they're kind of stuck. They can't give Jesus a right answer. Jesus has effectively shut down their objection. And so what Jesus does next is he turns to the crowd with these religious leaders still within earshot, and he starts to tell the crowd a story. It's a simple story, a little parable that is designed to be a warning, a warning about what will happen if you are like these religious leaders who reject his authority. And so as we look at this parable today from verse 9, I think Jesus wants us to notice three key things, three key truths for us to learn. The first truth that Jesus wants to present us with in this parable is that God is a generous and patient ruler. God is a generous and patient ruler. Have a look at uh, how the story begins in verse 9. Jesus says, A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. Now, uh, we may not get, kind of get the full significance of that, but Jesus' first hearers, the ones he was speaking to in the temple, they would have understood the significance of that imagery right away because in the Old Testament, it speaks about Israel, the nation, as being a vine that God lovingly planted and has been cared for by God sort of as a farmer. Uh, in fact, Jesus is probably referencing here a passage in Isaiah chapter 5, which speaks explicitly about Israel as this vineyard of God. And in Isaiah chapter 5, we'll get the verses up on the screen, it describes uh, an owner that had a vineyard on this very fertile hillside, and he goes to great lengths to prepare uh, for the vines. He digs it all up. He clears the ground of stones. He plants the vines. He builds a watchtower even to make sure the land was protected. He does everything to ensure that the conditions were right to produce a crop. And so when Jesus just uses that phrase, a man planted a vineyard, his hearers would have immediately been thinking about this connection, uh, those few words which describe centuries of God's generosity towards his people Israel. Because God didn't have to do any of that for them, did he, to be that kind to them. He didn't have to rescue them from slavery in Egypt, but he did it as an act of pure grace 
He redeemed them from slavery and then he pledged himself to them to be their God forever. He brought them into a land that he'd prepared for them, a fertile land. He didn't have to do any of that. They had done nothing for him. And yet God was amazingly generous to Israel. He planted a vineyard, says Jesus. And that kindness that God showed to Israel, it's really a reflection of the loving kindness that God shows to all of humanity. You know, the the Bible begins with this foundational reality that God is the creator and he has created a beautiful, good world as a gift for the human race. Uh, And even though that world has been broken and twisted by sin now, we can still see evidence of the goodness of this creation all around us. And I want to suggest to you, you should be able to see that evidence, especially here in the Illawarra. Ladies and gentlemen, this is where you live. (laughs) This is a picture. This is a, a city that screams of the generosity and goodness of God. There is evidence all around you in any direction you look of how kind and generous a creator God is. I'll tell you what, I visited Sydney on Friday and I feel like the evidence of God's generosity to us in the Illawarra is always brought home to me every time I drive up to Sydney. Apologies if you're from Sydney. But every time I'm driving back down the freeway, I think to myself, man, I'm so privileged to live here. God is so kind to have given this place to us. I wonder if you're conscious of God's goodness to you in that way. But it's not just that God has been good by giving us a beautiful place to live in, a gorgeous world to enjoy. It's not just that. In fact, God has given us every good thing that we experience in our lives. The Bible says that every good gift comes down from above. He gives everyone life and breath and everything else, says the Bible. That means that every single good thing that you have experienced in your life, health, Happiness, peace, rest, friendship, beauty, satisfaction, all of it, every millisecond of it has been a gift that the creator God has chosen to give to you. And isn't that so much more than you and I deserve? God does not owe us those blessings any more than he owed Israel the blessings that he gave them. Far from it. Charles Spurgeon famously once said that all beyond hell is mercy. That means that every single thing that you experience that is not hell is a a merciful gift from your God. The owner of this vineyard is incredibly generous and he's also incredibly patient. Did you pick that up? In verse 10, we'll pick it up again. At harvest time... He sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, that's a a reasonable kind of a thing for this owner to do, isn't it? He owns the vineyard. He's got the right to expect some of the produce from it, but the tenants don't give him any. They beat the servant, actually. They send him away empty-handed. And if you were hearing this story for the first time, you would probably assume that it's at that point that the tenant cuts, the, the landowner cuts them off, that he calls the authorities, gets them evicted, demands full payment for what he's owed, terminates the contract with them. But that's not what happens in the story because this landowner, again, is not like us. He doesn't act the way we would. He shows amazing patience. And so he sends another servant, verse 11. But the tenants do the same to him. Surely that's enough. 
surely twice is enough to know that these tenants are not going to give the landowner what he deserves. The landowner sends another servant, verse 12, and the same thing happens to him. That, of course, is a, a picture, if you know the story of the Bible, of the way that God sent prophets to his people, Israel, all throughout their history. You see, God didn't just kind of create this beautiful world for people to enjoy and then step out of the picture and leave people to their own devices. No, this is a God of infinite love who longs for relationship, and you can't have relationship without communication. This is a God who speaks. The people that God called to himself, who he redeemed and brought into the land, he wants to be close to them. He's not satisfied with being cut out of the picture. And so he speaks to them. He pursues them repeatedly. And I want you to ask yourself, with that picture of God, does that sound like a God who is a harsh tyrant? Does that sound like a God who is an unjust taskmaster? It doesn't sound like that at all, does it? That's Jesus' point. Jesus is trying to show that when we balk and resist and push back on God's authority, it's this God that we are pushing back on, this kind and generous God, a God who loves us far more than our sins deserve, a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. He is a generous and patient ruler. That's who this God is. And because that is who this God is, then the second truth for us to reckon with in this passage, the second truth is that rejecting God's rule is pure wickedness. If that's who God is, then rejecting his rule is pure wickedness. The tenants in the story, it's quite clear that they owe the owner their thanks, their gratitude and their produce, but they give him neither. When this owner reaches out in love and he sends his messengers to the tenants, the tenants react with violent hostility, just like they did, just like Israel did, to the prophets that were sent to them throughout the centuries. Prophet Isaiah, according to ancient tradition, he was arrested and sawn in two. Prophet Jeremiah was thrown in jail to die. Zechariah was stoned to death. Their treatment of God's messengers was a damning indictment on Israel. But, of course, their worst sin was yet to come. Look what the owner of the vineyard does there and says in verse 13, after this long pattern of rejecting his messengers, look what he says, verse 13, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. What amazing love that is from the landowner. Now, Jesus' hearers would have understood the clear implication of what he was saying here. He's talking about himself. He's claiming to be the son sent by the landowner. Verse 14, But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, Jesus has uh, left history behind at this point, and he's talking about current affairs, really, at this stage. Because remember, at the end of chapter 19, this is exactly what the religious leaders have been doing, plotting, talking amongst themselves about how to kill Jesus. And so he is saying here in this story to those who are already set upon getting rid of him, he's saying to them, in rejecting me, you are rejecting 
God. This rebellion is pure wickedness. This is not an accident. This is not a case of mistaken identity. Oh, we didn't know that he was the son of the owner. No, look what they say. This is the heir, they say, verse 14. They know who this is. Friends, Jesus is trying to say something very uncomfortable here about human beings. Because we like to assume that human beings are you know, essentially very nice, uh, that we're all kind of inherently good, that we're rational, that we seek after the truth. In fact, all of us in some way are seeking after God. Jesus is saying, no, actually, you give humanity half a chance and they'll murder their maker. That's what we like. That's the kind of people we are. By default, we do not want to know God and we will do anything to keep him at arm's length. It goes right back to the beginning of the Bible. The third chapter of the Bible describes human beings deciding that they don't want God to run their lives and that they would rather do it themselves. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were essentially, essentially saying to God, just get lost, get out of the picture. We will do this better. Leave us to our own devices. We will run our own lives. And you remember there in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve do that, what happens next? God comes looking for them. Adam, where are you, says God. Adam's hiding. It's not that we're searching for God. No, it's that God is searching for us. And that's been true ever since that moment in the garden. God is lovingly seeking us out, calling us back to himself. Uh, My two eldest kids are at an age where a lot of their games uh, involve pretending to be a king or a queen. This is not my kids, FYI, in case you haven't met them. Uh, but illustration. Uh, when they do this, they pretend to be the king and the queen. Uh, they fight over who gets to be the king and the queen because, of course, the other sibling, the unlucky one, has to be the butler, and the butler has to wait on the king or queen, uh, you know, performing their every wish, granting their every desire. And I guess what they're doing there is trying to give the unlucky sibling a bit of a taste of what it's like to be a parent, you know, like waiting on the kids 24-7 and just... Anyway, uh, unsurprisingly, neither of our kids ever want to be the one serving the other. They both want to be the one in charge. They want to be the king or the queen. And I, I reckon that that's a desire that we never grow out of. I think we all want to be the king or the queen of our lives. But to do that, we have to silence the real king, God. We have to ignore his claim on our lives. We push him out of the picture. And Jesus wants us to see that decision for what it really is. It's a spiritual coup. Choosing to reject the authority of the Son of God and and to hold on to that authority for yourself, it is wicked rebellion. And so the third truth that Jesus wants us to grapple with in this story is that God will not let that rebellion go unpunished. God will not let that rebellion go unpunished. Jesus, when he gets to the end of his parable, his little story, he sort of pulls his hearers in, and he asks them a question, verse 15. He says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Right? They've just killed the son. What should the owner do? What's well, an obvious answer? Is it? It's not a trick question. It's, it's pretty obvious. The, the hearers would know, as you know, that the owner at that point would be justifiably furious. He would be filled with righteous anger. He would be entirely within his rights to destroy those tenants for their wicked rebellion, for the murder of his own son. They understand that. 
And Jesus says, yes, that's what would happen. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others, verse 16. And Luke, interestingly, he records the response of the people at that. They say, God forbid. Right? It's, it's not because they thought that there was any injustice in that action being taken by the landowner. No, of course not. It was obvious that that was the right thing to do. They say, God forbid, because they understand the implications of what's being said. They understand that the finger is being pointed at them. Uh, Jesus, he quotes there from the Old Testament uh, to explain that, yes, he is talking about Israel and about how God's blessing will be taken from them and given to the Gentiles. He quotes from Psalm 118 there, that the, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's the same psalm that was being sung to Jesus just before as he entered into the city of Jerusalem. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The same psalm. All right, the, the king that God sends, he will be worshipped by some, but he'll be rejected by many. And yet the point of the psalm is to say that that rejection, that's not the final word because the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Uh, My wife, Catherine, and I, we're building a house at the moment. And um, just a couple of months ago when the the builders were kind of leveling the block of land so that they could lay the foundations, they were digging up lots of big rocks out of the ground. We found out that there were trucks coming to take big piles of these rocks and go and take them to the dump or whatever. And uh, we were mortified and we had to ring them up and tell them, no, please stop doing that. We, <laughs> please don't get rid of those rocks. We want those rocks because we're going to build a big garden wall with them. Don't get rid of them. They're precious to us. To the builders, they were worthless. Just chuck them out, get rid of them. But no, to us, they were very special. It's kind of the same of what's going on here, that people might reject Jesus, but that's not the end of the story because God is going to recreate and perfect the whole world, and the Lord Jesus Christ will be at the center. He will be the cornerstone. Those who reject him will ultimately be the ones who suffer, not Jesus. I mean, he, they might kill him, but he will trip them up, verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus is really kind of he's stretching the metaphor, trying to get his mileage out of it at this point, because on the one hand, this stone that's being chucked on the rubbish tip, well, it's going to become the, the cornerstone, but then this stone is also something people will trip over, and it's also a stone that will crush people under its weight. Do you, do you see, friends, that Jesus here is giving the obituary of a nation? Israel is going to reject him, and they will be judged for it. But this parable is not just a warning to Israel. It's a warning to anyone who will reject Jesus' authority. God's judgment is inevitable. But God gives every opportunity to repent. He even sends his son so that people might listen to him. He says, if you want to face my judgment, it will be over my son's dead body. It is not our natural instinct to submit to God's authority. We are rebels at heart, whether you're Australian or not. If you're a human, you are a rebel at heart. But Jesus is a generous and patient king, and he comes with divine authority, and he wants to say to us, I'm not here to ruin your life. I know what is best, and so come to me and bend the knee. 
And I hope that you don't hear that as a threat from Jesus. Uh, because I want to make sure that you haven't missed the incredible words of hope that are right in the heart of this passage. There are seven crucial words in this passage in verse 16. Seven crucial words. Verse 16, he will give the vineyard to others. Those words are a doorway into God's kingdom. Those words are an invitation for anyone who will accept Jesus as their king to be a part of the new world that God is recreating around Jesus. It's an invitation that I hope you will take because everyone will bend the knee to Jesus one way or another, either by choice now or with begrudging acknowledgement at his judgment. The question for you to ask is which one of those are you going to choose? Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, you have been so kind and generous and patient with us. When we have turned away from you and rejected your authority over our lives, you have still showered us with blessing upon blessing. And we haven't been grateful. We haven't given you the worship that you deserve. And we are sorry, God. But we thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. Thank you that you sent your son, that you didn't give up on us, that you reached out to us in love, and that Jesus made a way to be welcomed into your kingdom despite our failures, despite our selfishness, despite our desire for autonomy. Thank you that Jesus welcomes rebels like us for anyone who will bend the knee to him and accept him as their king. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that. I ask in Jesus' name.